Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 37. How many of you read Psalm 37, even if you don't remember reading Psalm 37? You're positive you read through the Psalms, so therefore you must have read Psalm 37. Um, I've read through the Psalms many times. I've marked up many of the Psalms. This is one of my favorite Psalms, and I hope it will be one of yours after this evening. We will um, just read uh, the first seven verses. I wish I could read all of it. We don't have time. But let's read one, uh, verses 1 through 7. Let's stand. Uh, we get a chance to do this tonight. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, especially when you see the kind of context of uh, this psalm. It's got a different start to it, a different emphasis in how it starts. But let me read it, uh, starting in verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Lord, we just thank you again for this time we've already had to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, now to open your word, which... Uh, is it breathed by your spirit. And Lord, it is truth. And Lord, we pray that this truth would settle deep into our souls, but Lord, our minds would be open, our ears would be open, our hearts would be soft. Lord, we've heard some of these things before, but may they be fresh and new tonight. May you refresh and renew our walk with you. Maybe someone here needs to, to have the joy of their salvation restored tonight. Or Lord, just to be taken to a place of peace and rest in you instead of the turmoil that is all around us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to what each person needs by your spirit. Lord, you would meet us here. And Lord, we would leave here changed and more conformed to the image of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. When it uh, comes to living our lives on this earth, we are surrounded by the lives of others that are living. Everybody else out there, riding down Genito, Hall Street, 288, I-95, downtown, the other side of town, all around us, all around the country, all around the world, we're surrounded by the lives that other people are living. And we're immersed, even subconsciously, in the cultural values, in the norms, and the expectations of society all around us. We all are inundated by it. No matter the country, no matter the culture, even no matter the century. This has been true 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago. It's always the case. And as a culture is shaped over time... What's accepted, 
what's endorsed, what's encouraged, what's applauded, sometimes changes over time. Have you ever seen this in your lifetime? We're seeing it right now. Many things are applauded now that weren't applauded not so long ago. What's considered normative and even honorable changes as a culture changes, as a society changes. But guess what? God never changes. Ever. Not at all. Not from the garden, not before the flood, not after the flood, not before the cross, not after the cross, not before the Reformation, not after the Reformation, not ever. He never changes. I'm glad he never changes. How about you? In an ever-changing world, God never changes. His holiness, his righteousness, his command, his promises, they're perpetual, they're evergreen. They're never changing. Now to the soul that has believed God, that has believed the word of God, that has responded by faith to the gospel of God, They've been changed. Any soul that has responded in faith has been changed. God didn't change. That soul was changed. Permanently changed. I was permanently changed. My wife and I, 27 years ago, this very month, June 1995. God didn't change. We changed. And by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, if you've been born again, if you've been changed, you're still being changed daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. That's called sanctification. Not salvation, sanctification. It's a slow process. It can be a painful process. But God is faithful through the process. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this. It says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's a process, like stair-step process, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is changing us. Our soul has already been changed from impending judgment to eternally forgiven. And now daily, we're being changed into the image and character of Christ, but it's a process. And our new nature is in conflict with our old nature. You ever feel that? You ever have an internal battle? I want to worship. I want to do nothing. Same person. I want to give everything to Jesus. I don't want to give nothing to Jesus. Same person. And our new nature, by the Spirit, knows that its new and future home is not this earth. Our new nature knows that I don't belong here anymore. Our new nature knows that. In John 17, 16, say, well, are you sure that that's true? Yes, Jesus said it in the upper room discourse. Here it is. You're gonna, we're going to get to it in John 17. Jesus said, speaking of all those that belong to him, first the apostles, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. People say, you're really odd now. Say, you're partly correct. Even fully correct. 
We've been changed. We are being changed. And now we're passing through this world. I'm 53 years through it. Some of y'all are farther through it. We're passing through. Yet in spite of all the supernatural work God has done in us, is doing in us, our physical eyes, our physical eyes, these eyes that get a little older but still can see, and our old nature, it still sees all the world around us. And sometimes, we may not admit it out loud, but sometimes we look longingly at what the world has. Lot did, didn't he? He's sitting there with Abraham. And Lot was a, the Bible tells us Lot was actually a righteous man, but in other words, he was saved, he was born again, but he sometimes looked over there and said, they're having so much fun down there in Sodom. Not just the sexual immorality and all that stuff. Sodom was known to rise and just play and leisure and pleasure. Ezekiel tells us about that. But God wants that kind of looking and longing or striving with the world to fade from our minds and thinking. Do you agree, you agree with that, that God wants that to fade in our lives? He wants it to fade away? If you're taking notes, you see the title again this uh, evening, Dwell on His Faithfulness. Dwell on His Faithfulness. This is the first chapter in our psalm series that we're not going to be able to cover every verse tonight. If we did, we'd be here a while. Okay, so I could go flying through it, but we won't cover every verse tonight. won't be the last time because psalm has some very long chapters. Psalm 119, the longest in the Bible. But I encourage you to read the entire chapter, even if you've read it recently. Maybe even read it tonight before you go to bed. It's a very easy read, 40 verses. Read it sometime this week. We'll certainly capture the heart of this psalm. We'll look primarily, almost, well, definitely the vast majority tonight in just verses 1 through 7. I'll try and touch on a few others uh, near the end, but mostly we're looking at verses 1 through 7. But remember again the theme, and some of the teenagers, you haven't been here, but the theme of the whole book of Psalms, all the Psalms, remember, is living life in the real world. Living, living life for God in the real world, which is not that easy, is it? Not easy to live for the Lord in a world that's going the opposite direction. We're swimming upstream. But let's look at verse 1. Go back to verse 1 here. Do not fret because of evildoers. David, that's not very accommodating now, is it? Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. This psalm is the first psalm. You can start reading from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all the way. This is the first psalm that begins with do not. So 1 through 39, they don't begin with do not. This is the first one that begins. Now, there are plenty of do nots all through the Psalms. If you want to do a word search of do, comma, not, there's lots of do nots that are in the entire book of Psalms. I encourage you to um, just kind of notice them going forward. And this being the first one to begin with do not, 
there's only one other in the whole book of Psalms that, ends, that begins with do not, and that's Psalm chapter 83. It's the only other one that begins with do not. But Psalm 83 is, is quite a bit different because Psalm 83 is David crying out to God, or the psalmist, I should say, not David. I think it's actually Asaph. But the psalmist is crying out to God in Psalm 83. Do not be silent because of the enemies coming against Israel, the nation. So it's actually, it's a totally different context. So that makes this particular psalm unique. There's no other psalm like it, that the do not is not a prayer to God. It's speaking to other people. Here in Psalm 40, this is unique among all the psalms. Again, not a cry to God. No, this, this beginning, this do not, it's in the negative command. The negative command. In other words, it's not a do command. It's not, another, it's not do these things. It's a do not do this. So it starts out with a do not, but it's a command and it's an exhortation to any and every believer in the Lord. If you're a believer in the Lord, this do not is for you and for me and those of you that are watching online. This is David effectively, King David. We know his primary role was the king, but he wrote a lot of scripture for the Lord, right? He's anointed to read, uh, write much. He had a prophetic role. He wrote some of the prophecies that we've been reading of in the book of John. This is David effectively in the role of a preacher in this context here in Psalm 40. Uh, you may remember, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, his son Solomon begins Ecclesiastes with saying the words of the preacher, even though we know King Solomon's primary role was a king. But at the end of his life, he came to his senses of when he had walked away from the Lord, and he writes Ecclesiastes as a message to the people, and he writes it from an authoritative position that he frames as him being a preacher. And so this is David effectively in the role of a preacher as well. This psalm is essentially a sermon, if you read the whole psalm, it's essentially a sermon to those that have trusted in God. It's a sermon in the form of a song. It's a sermon in the form of a song. It's a sermon of encouragement. It's a sermon of understanding, of corrective counsel, and of warning, because if someone who's not a believer came and heard this, heard this sermon, they also would benefit because there's plenty of things that the unsaved person say, hey, I think that might speak of me. That's why, again, the body of Christ, when we, we, when we gather on Sundays and Wednesdays, primarily I'm teaching and preaching to build up the body of Christ, but there's always enough truth that if an unsaved person came in, it could fall in their ears and say, I need that. David has enough to say here that would apply to someone outside the faith. But again, it is a sermon that's a song primarily to those that are following the Lord and are being worn down potentially by the world. You ever feel that way? Just worn down by living in a world. You know, gravity holds you down, but also just everything else in this world can hold us down. Now, many of the most powerful, thinking about, again, just a, a sermon it's actually written as opposed to verbal, but many uh, of the most powerful and insightful messages, sermons, if you will, in, in Scripture were first preached with a pen. Does that make sense? 
They were first preached with a pen. In other words, ink on paper before they were ever preached from a pulpit. And people like myself, we're now taking what David preached with a pen and preaching it from the pulpit. We're just repurposing a truth that will magnify in time. Some of Paul's sermons in the form of a pen were not only from a pen, they were from a pen in prison. And they go all the way outside the walls of a cell, and we're still reading them fresh and new today. Amen? Not a pen in prison, powerfully changing lives even this day, correctively and encouragingly. When they were finally read aloud, Paul said, when they get to the churches, read these to the congregation. That's what he said. He said, read them aloud. You don't even need to add anything. Paul said, just read it, and it'll read like a sermon, and people will hear it and say, God's speaking, I'm convicted of that, or encouraged by that, or corrected by that, whatever it may be. But if David were standing in a pulpit, we don't know that he ever did that, but if David were standing in a pulpit, his opening words here, if he was standing in a pulpit in the Middle East, where he grew up, or here in Chesterfield, if he were standing in a pulpit, he would be saying these words, and I'm going to just contemporize a little bit, do not worry, instead of fret here, do not worry because of evildoers or, the, or be envious of those that are practicing sin and iniquity. Practicing it. Practicing means something habitual. It's their lifestyle. It's the choice of their life. David said, don't worry about those that are living in sin and those that are given over to their sins. He didn't say don't pray for them. He said don't worry. Big difference, right? It's an attention grabbing, it's a heart convicting, let me get straight to the point intro, if you will, from David on what he knows about God, but what he also knows of himself and those that are following God. David knows the nature of God, but he also knows his own nature, and he knows your and my nature, because we all have the same nature. I'm talking about our, our natural, what we were born with. You see, God is always faithful to those who trust him. But we're so frail, and our flesh is so strong that we can easily take our eyes off of his faithfulness. Amen? We can take our eyes off of his faithfulness and look longingly at a fallen, failing world. Man, they got all the answers. Their kid just got into Harvard. They got a raise. They got a brand new car. They have it made. They have great health. People can, in the church that know the Lord can look over there. In fact, this whole chapter, the whole 37th chapter, all 40 verses, is, is a, it contrasts the choice, and it is a choice, to focus on God's faithfulness or to focus on the failure of this world. To focus on God's faithfulness or to focus on the failure of this world. Now, verse 2, look at verse 2. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither is the green herb. David sums up 
that is a fool's game to focus and fixate and even envy, back in verse 1, those doing whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want, with no regard whatsoever to God, and seem to be living it up. That's back in verse 1. He's like, you might be envious of their life for a second. Hopefully it's a fleeting second. But David reminds his hearers, simply put, those that ignore God are soon, look in your Bibles, for they shall soon, the Bible never exaggerates, only we do, they shall soon be cut down and wither away. He's not rejoicing in this fact. He's only reminding them, don't be deceived. The broad road of destruction, many there be that go their way, that way, Jesus said. Don't be deceived. They will soon have no more opportunity to put their faith and trust in God. David's not rejoicing in it. He's simply saying, don't be deceived with their deception. And by the way, soon is not an exaggeration at all for any of our lives. You know these passages, or you might. Psalm 39.5, certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. James 4.14, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. The older you get, you realize, man, life does move really fast. I, I, I feel like we were just in, our kids were in diapers days ago, and now they're all high school seniors or college. Those of you that say, well, I remember that, but mine are now grandkids. It's a vapor. It, it moves fast. Even the, even the world knows this. There's a country song called Don't Blink about a 100-year-old man. It says, don't blink, your life goes that fast. Even the world knows this. I mean, and sometimes they remember it, but they still kind of just shove it to the side and still don't choose the Lord. So if we were in the congregation, let's say David was standing in the pulpit. I know it's a, it's a message from the pen more than the pulpit. But if we were in the congregation and we were to receive David's words, we were to receive them with soft hearts and say, thank you, David. I really needed that because I was starting to really worry about my life in this world and even getting a little jealous of the world. That's what he's saying. That's what he's proposing is the, the hypothesis. That's why he's beginning the whole thing with do not, don't, don't do that. And if you said, uh, well, David, now that you've pointed this out, what should I focus on? And David would say, well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's where verse 3 comes in. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and feed on his faithfulness. Now, so we go from a do not to a do. Begins with do not, verse 1 and 2. But here he moves into here's what you should do instead. Eyes off of this fallen world and its seeming command and control of everything. And by the way, it's good to know what's going on in the world. It is not good to consume 
this world's news 24-7. It will mess you up. I'm actually reading less of the news than I used to. It's the same bad news every day, constantly. And Satan, he is running his circus show in the world. I understand that. I'm informed enough to be able to pray over certain things, to be aware of certain things, but I find myself more and more wanting to know what God is doing in the Middle East with missionaries, what God's doing in Africa with missionaries, what God's doing in Europe with church. That's the stuff, and I still am aware of what's going on. I'm aware of the dangers we're in, all of that, but not to be focused on it, not to be fixated on it. So David's saying, take your eyes off of all those things and put your eyes on the Lord who is above everything and trust in him. We just sang, trust and obey. Obey goes back to verses 1 and 2, but also this is, those are the do not obeys. Now it's a do obey. We have some do nots, by the way, in the Ten Commandments, don't we, right? Do not put other gods before me, right? Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, right? So we got some do nots. David's adding these do not. Don't fret because they've yielded. But here's what to do. And this trusting Lord, uh, we can all do this and we need to do this. I think I do it every single day, certainly in the morning and throughout the day recommit that faith and trust in him. It's not a recommitment like walking forward the aisle and you know there, there may be a time where it's even in this church we're, we're, we were, I was talking with Javon and Bradley about it in this church we might have some times coming up this year where we truly do have an altar call for people to really just fully recommit their lives to Christ and there's a place for that but there's always this constant I don't know about you but again daily Lord I'm committing that my faith today is in you, not in what goes wrong, not in how much money's in the bank, not in this, that, or the other. Our faith in that, that the Lord recommitting that to him, recommitting that trust in him, which is a do rather than a do not. And David continues with a list of what to do. So not just the do, this first do, uh, trust in the Lord and to do good, but he comes with this list of what to do. And this first one where he says, trust in the Lord and do good. We're not called, what does he mean by do good? We're not called as believers here in 2022. We are not called, nor was the early church, nor was the church a thousand years ago, we're not called to sit around and wait for another Sunday to roll around to do something good like, I'm going to sing a praise song. I'm going to wait seven days to do another good thing. Um, God, I'm going to honor you. Here's my tip. Call a Sunday service. I'm going to attend it. No, the doing good is obeying the righteous commands. We just sang trust and obey. It's obeying the righteous commands that God has given it's the good which God places in us and intentional work of praying to God, of participating daily in the kingdom work of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And doing it in the spirit of God. That's what it means to do good. Many believers look longingly at the world because 
They're not doing the work of God. Idle hands, there's no verse in the Bible that says idle hands are the devil's workshop. There's no verse that says that. That is a saying or a phrase that someone came up with. But there is some truth to it, isn't there not? There's definitely some truth to it. Jesus said, I, when I come back, will I find you busy about my father's business? Not busy with the busyness of this world or the distraction, but many believers look, start looking at the world because they're not actually doing the work of God. David fell into this himself one time when he did not go out to battle. He starts looking across the way and he finds Bathsheba. Instead, had he been doing the work of God, he would have never been in that place. But David goes on here. But understand, oh, real quick, um, one more point about this. If our eyes are on the Lord, and if our hands are to the plow doing the work of the Lord, if our eyes are on the Lord and our hands are on the plow doing the work of the Lord, we often don't have time to be tempted or distracted or defeated by this world. Amen? You don't have time to be tempted by it, distracted by it, or defeated by it. If your eyes are on the Lord and your hands are on the plow. So David goes on. He says, do good. And he says, dwell in the land. Let's stop right there for a second. What does that mean? Dwell in the land. It means to accept the time, the place, the season, and even the lifespan we're given. To accept it. Say, Lord, uh, I accept this is where you want me. This is where you've called me. This is where you've placed me. This is the number of kids you gave us. This is the house you gave us. This is the job you gave us. This is the boss you gave me. To dwell where you're at. I remember uh, years ago, Pastor Chuck was talking to uh, another Calvary Chapel pastor. This Calvary Chapel pastor was close to pulling the plug and just saying, I, I, it's just too much. And Pastor Chuck told him, he said, you need to learn to just grow where you're planted. That's the only advice he gave him. You need to learn to grow where you're planted. And all believers, David is saying, you need to learn to dwell where God puts you. In the time, in the place, in the season. Don't be thinking, I need to change the scenery. I need a new, I need a new place. I need to live in the Bahamas. I need to live somewhere else. I need to do something else. It's a, no, it's, God wants us to change our vision and focus, not our geography. I'm not saying God doesn't call people to other places. I'm here because God called, you know, God called me from Charlotte to here. That's not what I'm talking about. David's saying, in your heart, be able to dwell where God has placed you. Accept where he's placed you. And then he goes on, he said, and feed on his faithfulness. Did you know you can feed on God's faithfulness wherever you're at? Anywhere on the earth? Anywhere. You can feed on God's faithfulness anywhere. What does that mean? It means to feed on the Word of God. We talked about Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. The Word is a pasture. That's to feed on the Word of God. But it's not only to feed on the Word of God. There's more to it. It's also to meditate, to marinate on His faithfulness. And we can meditate on His faithfulness looking back to literally Hundreds of generations of faithfulness. Amen? I, I benefit from God's faithfulness to David as if I was right there in the same time as David.
because God hasn't changed and mankind hasn't changed. Therefore, it's contemporary in any time. All of his faithfulness then is still visible for us to meditate on now. Believing in his unfailing word and his work versus the world's only failing work. Everything the world does fails. Did you know like in the 60s, I think it was Lyndon B. Johnson said they, were, they declared a war on poverty. How's that going? That was in the 60s. Last I checked, we still have a lot of people. We have more people homeless in L.A. now than ever. The war on poverty is a losing proposition. You know, we've spent, I want to say, it's over a trillion, might be two trillion, over the years from the United States and the United Nations to parts of Africa, most of the parts we sent it to are still having many people starving. Nothing that this world does works for any length of time. I was, I was, we had a friend of ours uh, that's in Tennessee. Uh, last night, Tennessee had some uh, rolling uh, brownouts, blackouts, where they were shutting down power uh, to conserve because of a heat wave. This has also happened in California. It's happened in Texas. I was asking myself, I'm like, hold on here. We have more technology than ever. We have weather forecasting like the world's never seen. We supposedly have redundancy to our redundancy, and in California, Texas, and Tennessee, we're running out of power. Tell me how we are so much better off as humans, and we haven't even had God throw curveballs like we see in the book of Ezekiel. He said, the nation that does not, he said, the nation that persists in rejecting me, I will send a famine in the land. He has not sent a famine to America yet. If he does, bar the doors. Right? The point is, why would you trust? Why would you look longing at the world when it fails in everything? I mean, in the scale of it all, every presidential election never turns out. There's 8 million broken promises. I know that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. And God says to feed on something, and that something is his faithfulness. And to feed on something, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, it means to chew when he says feed on, when you feed on something, it's to chew on the same thing for a sustained amount of time, to feed on something. If you say, we've been feeding on that casserole for days, right? That's, or, or we've been feeding on the post-Thanksgiving for days. You don't say that about everything. You don't say, I've been feeding on that bowl of cereal for weeks. No, that doesn't happen. It's soggy and no good later, but the turkey and stuffing, all that stuff. Yeah, to feed on something is a length of time. And what David's speaking of more specifically is this feeding is to be the lifetime feeding on the faithfulness of God, to dwell and to focus on his faithfulness. It's to be sheep that feed only on grass. Sheep don't say, today we're not going to do grass anymore. Today we're going to go and we're going to eat sand. They only feed on grass. In our case, it's feeding on the Word of God. It's feeding on the witness of God. It's feeding on His character. It's meditating on the fact that He can be trusted. You have to meditate on the fact that God can be trusted. The world, you don't have to meditate on the world because you get thousands of messages from the world every day. So you don't have to meditate on it. You're getting it. You're getting the just blitz from all directions. 
You have to intentionally meditate on the faithfulness of God because the world's not going to ever give you the witness of God. They'll give you everything but God. This is in my notes. I think of the hymn, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. I'm just reading exactly where it is. I thought I had a new thought, and Tawan went and played the hymn. <laughs> I knew it wasn't a new thought. I knew it was an old hymn, but, but God is speaking. That it's a double witness is what it is. Sometimes God does that. Verily, verily. It's a double witness. He's telling us. He's telling me for sure, and I know he's telling you too, that we need to trust him more and more. Because I don't really say or and or anymore here, but, uh, but more and more. Our feelings, by the way, cannot be trusted. Our feelings cannot be trusted. This world cannot be trusted. But God, our Savior, can be trusted. The Word of God can be trusted. I don't trust my feelings at all. I've learned that. My feelings are all about me. Remember we read in Psalm 23? It's for his namesake. It's for his namesake. All of it's for his namesake. It's really healthy to take our eyes off us, his faithfulness, his namesake. To feed, he wants us to stay still in his word. To stay in the frame of mind of worshiping him. To recite his words. To grow in faith. You're here tonight or you're watching online. You're either here tonight or watching online. If God's given you the availability to be here, and I know there's times when you don't have the availability. Work has you there till 9 o'clock or you have to have the kids somewhere. I get all that. But you're here tonight if you have the availability and you're listening or watching online because you prioritize being here, and I would hope and believe that it's because you want to grow in trusting God. Amen? You want to grow in trusting God. I don't care how long you've been saved. You can still grow in trusting God. Daniel didn't go to the lion's den until late in his life. He might not have even been ready to take on that step of faith early in his life. Moses was much older when he parted the Red Sea. Right? So... You can continue to grow in trusting God, in hearing from God. And I bet you've prioritized being here because you want to trust more in God. Not just to, uh, to hear from Him, but to learn more from the Lord. I know I do. I want to learn more from the Lord. But also, I believe we'd probably say we're here tonight because we've come to learn we really need God more than we even thought we did. You might hit a place in life where that's... We read this about David last week in Psalm chapter 30. He was at a one-foot-in-the-grave place, and he realized, I desperately need God. You'll reach a point in your life, even post-salvation... You'll reach plenty of them if you live long enough that you will come to realizations, wow, I need God way more than I thought I even did. But we'll never feed on his faithfulness until we truly desire his faithful presence and we see our need 
for him as the focal point of our life. We have to see that need. No one else can make you see it. You've got to see it. I've got to see it. The Holy Spirit has to say, you need to see that when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom, he meant seek him first, not second, not third. No, well, how about fifth? No. And we need to feed on the word of God and we need to uh, meditate on him to come to the place where we even see these things more clearly. You know these passages, you probably do. So then faith, Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more I'm in the word of God, the more God fortifies my faith and reminds me I need faith and strengthens my faith. He, Psalm 119, 15, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your works. God loves when we are driving down the road and we contemplate his majesty. We contemplate his invincibility. We contemplate his grace, his mercy, his power. And then from the book of Joshua, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to Think about it? No. Do all. Remember David has some do nots that are followed by the do. Do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Not the world's success, but what God defines as well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he's saying. If you're going to hear well done, good and faithful servant, you would have had godly success. And that godly success would be rejecting the world and feeding on the faithfulness of God. But the Word of God is central to it. We're reading it right now. Verse 4. I said we focus mostly on these verse 7 verses. Verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. This is great. I'm going to get the vacation of my dreams now. I'm finally going to get a Ferrari. I'm finally going to make six figures without doing hardly anything. I'm going to win the lottery. You know, whatever it is that you're thinking. Now, you guys know better than that. If we choose, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us choose. We talk about choosing back the Lord on Sunday. If we choose, and we have the Holy Spirit who will help us choose correctly... But if we choose to, and Holy Spirit, help me do this, and he will, delight ourselves in the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm going to delight in you. And you might start off by just saying it and say, I don't feel that at all. I just said it. It was just words. I'm Keep saying it. Say, Lord, make my feelings end up matching what I'm saying. Lord, I'm going to choose to delight myself in you. And when we do, he will give us, as it says here, the desires of our heart. Number one, so when we think about the desires of our heart, what does it mean to receive the desires of our heart? Number one, our desires will change when we delight in the Lord. So as soon as you truly begin to delight in the Lord, like, let's take, do you guys believe that the angels in heaven delight to do God's will? Yeah, we know that they don't even have sin. They always delight. If Jesus says, go down there and smite Jerusalem, they do it. If Jesus says, go down there and take care of Abraham, they do it. If Jesus says, go down there and feed this person, they do it. They always delight to do his will. Guess what the angels probably don't sit around and do? Man, I wish I was a millionaire. 
man, I wish I had a bigger house. Man, I wish I could go on vacation. They don't think like that because all they delight in is the Lord. Now, someday we'll be in heaven and we won't battle temptation in our flesh anymore and we'll only delight in the Lord. Right now, we have to intentionally choose to delight in the Lord. But we have the Holy Spirit. And the angels look down and say, they have the Holy Spirit. They can actually do it because they have the Spirit. But the more we delight in the Lord, our desires change. We'll start to desire to grow. When you delight in the Lord, you'll start to desire to grow. If you don't delight in the Lord, you don't care if you ever grow. You don't care if you're a tree this big for the rest of your life. You delight in the Lord, and you say, Lord, I don't want to be a tree this size. I want to have fruit, right? That other people can actually benefit from the life you call me to live. So we'll desire to grow. And guess what? We will grow. We'll desire to make disciples. And guess what? We'll make disciples. We'll desire to worship. And guess what? We actually will worship. But we'll also see the realization of what everyone desires. There are some common desires that people have, even unsaved. There's some common desires. Millions of people have certain desires that we have as well. They're just looking in the wrong place. Amen? Millions of people want peace. They want joy. They want contentment. They're just looking in totally the wrong place. God's like, this is the only place you'll ever find it. You can look all you want in these other places. You're never going to find it. Verses 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So what David's saying here, commit your way to the Lord. This starting sentence here. Commit your way to the Lord. It means to surrender your way to the Lord, to yield your way to his way. Lord, and whatever way that is, Lord, I'm yielding my way to your way. It's to leave all your dreams. Remember Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? That's a kind of abandonment of any plans you had. You do, it doesn't work like this. You, don't say, you write up a list, you hand it to God, he signs off on it, and you go on. No, he, he says, no, no, you take your list, throw it in the trash can, and wait for my list. Where's my list? You're holding it. It's called the Bible. That word is a lamp unto my feet. So this is what the Lord does. We, he's calling us to leave our, all of our dreams, all of our plans, all of our preferences, and all of our effort and striving to leave it all at his feet at the cross. Leave it all there. To trust that he knows infinitely more than we do about the way and the path that he has planned for us. Did any of you plan to be born? Did any of you say, I, I, like I was born February 1st, 1969. I never had a say in it. None of you plan to be born. You didn't plan what day you'd be born again, and you don't plan the path forward. You receive the path. And David's saying, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way that God, if he chose the day you're born, if he chose the day you're born again, he's also the one choosing the rest of your life. And you have to trust him in that. It doesn't mean that some of our preferences and some of our desires won't end up happening. Praise God. It's like, yeah, me and my wife, we look forward to someday being grandparents. If we're alive long enough, 
because we don't really want to do babies ourselves all over again, <laughs> but we're pretty good with our girls someday doing it, right? Now, that would be a, a godly desire because the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. I already know it's a godly desire. So if the world, if the Lord should tarry, I hope someday we get to enjoy that. But there's no guarantees. If the rapture comes before that, which I'm really good with, right? Then I'll bypass that gladly, you know? So again, there's things that God will bring your way, but you're not insisting on them. Does that make sense? You've committed your way. Say, Lord, I'm committing my way, and if your way is this way or that way, I'm okay with it because you know me better and you know what's best for me. So to commit your way to the Lord. And he says, trust also in him. Again, trust uh, emphasized once again. Because he knows the path he has for us. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I have not fulfilled all the commands that God has asked for me to walk in. I don't even know what some of those are. I know they're all in accordance with the Word, but I don't know exactly what they'll be. But if I'm feeding on His faithfulness, I'm going to walk in them. If I've committed my way to Him, then I'm not going to try and grab my own way. I'm going to go the direction that God is calling. He will bring to pass each new step and each new work. We don't have to worry about tomorrow or next week or next year. He will bring those things to pass. Amen? Well, God, we can't afford this. We've been giving to you. God's like, look, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I can take care. I can bring to pass what you need. I can solve your dilemmas. But you just continue to walk the path and do the works that I've called you to do. Um, Verse 6 here, he'll bring it to pass. Verse 6, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So what is he saying here? Well, he's going to bring forth a righteousness, which is a Christ-likeness. A righteousness in us that we could never produce on our own. Mankind can't produce righteousness only Christ in us can produce righteousness. Do we all agree with that? We, all, we, can't, we only can produce bad fruit. And then Jesus comes in and he can produce righteousness. We receive the righteousness of Christ. We don't produce the righteousness of Christ. We reflect. The moon never produces light. It only reflects the light of the sun. Amen? That's us. We receive the light and then it is reflected back. We don't produce that light. We receive the light. We receive his righteousness so when he says, shall bring forth your righteousness, it's because you're receiving it from the Lord. We can know, uh, but he goes, he says, and your righteousness as the light and your justice as in noonday, um, we can no more create righteousness than we can create light. God creates light. God is light. We can't, and it said this noonday uh, mentioned here, we can't produce light. Either he brings it forth or it doesn't happen. But if we commit and surrender to him and his word, uh, we can trust that not only will he bring all of his promises to pass in our lives, but he'll also rectify. There has been a lot of believers in this lifetime that have received injustices. Satan is a very uh, wicked fallen angel that's uh, wreaked havoc on the church, and many people have received injustice in this lifetime, not 
the sense of their own goodness, but what God did not, he didn't do some of the things that have been done to people. This fallen world has done them, but we still incur in this lifetime things that were not any fault of our own. Innocent kids have been harmed, but God will someday, for the believer, he will rectify every single injustice. You have to just believe that. He will rectify all of it in his time. But until then, what are we called to do in our final verse, uh, at least the emphasis here, verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. So this final uh, verse here, rest in him. To rest in the Lord, it means don't strive to figure everything out and solve everything. Rest in the wisdom, in the power, in the sovereignty, and the total control of God. I'm not always good at this. How about y'all? Just Because re- I, I would prefer to get things started, Lord. Let me help you with this. He doesn't need our help. He's told us to rest in him. He maketh me to lie down. We talked about that back again. Psalm 23. Again, I try and tie our prior teachings into this because they're all connected. They're all intertwined. Pray and give things over to the Lord. Pray and give them over to the Lord. Pray and give them over to the Lord. This is a learning process. You have, there's an intentionality to feed on His faithfulness, to commit the way, and it's an intentionality to say, Lord, teach me how to rest in you. Teach me how to pray it, give it to you, and not try and take it back. And then wait on the Lord, because waiting on the Lord is trusting in the Lord. What about His timing? Is he, not, is he not aware of the clock? What is that? All these things. And these do commands, because remember, it started off verse 1 and 2 with, with these do nots. These do commands, they calm our minds and they calm our spirit. Isn't that good to know? David is, David is not saying this to rob you of a calm mind. He's saying these things to see you and me come to a place where we have a calm mind. Jesus was always calm and under control. We, I, I told you, I'm amazed that the night before his crucifixion, he's just calmly washing feet when we would have been pulling out our hair. We would have passed out before we ever got to the cross. But these do commands, they calm our mind. You know Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known unto God and then leave them with him. This is a learning process. In some cases, um, as you get older, uh, you, you sometimes worry about more things than when you were younger. This is an odd thing. And the scriptures actually verify this. This is not, uh, so you actually have to mature commensurate with your body and mind that deteriorates, you actually have to grow spiritually maturely commensurate with the fact that you will naturally worry about more things because you know more things and you see 16 year olds don't worry about things because they don't know enough to worry about certain things. Then when you you know too much, you can worry about because you see all the factors and you have too much data and and then by the way, you produce too much of 
this, you know, too much cortisol, this, all, the, all these things. And so you have to grow spiritually above those things. So it's a process in learning to make our request known to God. If Satan can't make us join this world, he'll settle for us worrying our way through this world. Let me say that again. If he cannot make you join the world, he will settle for making you worry nonstop through it. And by the way, even, though, even the world can see that Satan will settle for messing with the children of God. Uh, back when I was still in my prior career, this is like probably 12, 13 years ago, uh, I, had a, I, knew I, was a, I knew I was in the final couple of years before the Lord was asking me to step away and, and, and go in full-time ministry. And, and some of my colleagues who were unsafe colleagues didn't know the Lord... They all knew I was already ordained, teaching on Sundays. They knew where I was headed. Uh, they would kind of ask me, is this the year? Is this the year you leave? Is this the year you leave? You know, and all that stuff. I had a string of things happening, like my, my neck blew out and I had a fusion and I was in a car accident. And all, just a number of things happened in a row. And even an unsaved colleague of mine said, uh, he's like, I think God's telling you to leave. <laughs> like, I, like he didn't follow the Lord, but the world, he knew I was under a different commission than him. He just knew. And you see this in the Bible where you'll see, you'll be reading an Old Testament passage and someone say, your God does this for you, but, we, but they still didn't believe in the God of Israel. They would even say, your God, we know your God will take care of you. Well, why don't y'all follow? Well, we don't want him, but we just know he'll take care of you. <laughs> you'll read that in the scriptures and you'll see, what, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they not come over to the side of God when they could clearly recognize, well, that's the world we live in. It's not that they don't see what God is doing. They don't want the buffeting of Satan. They know they're on the side. that Satan's not going to bother. And I'm not saying the world doesn't have, they still get cancer, they still get heart attacks. I get that. But there are a certain number of things that only constantly buffet the saints. And that's what David's taught. That's why he's preaching the sermon to believers. Like, you guys got to stop looking at them and worrying. Like, why are they getting away with all this? That's kind of what he's saying. And he says it again, and he says, let me, I got to wrap it up here. In verse 7, do not fret because of him who... He re-emphasizes again in the latter part of verse 7. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because the man brings wicked schemes to pass. David's like, I know you're thinking it. You are thinking, but they're, they're not doing it. They're not dwelling on God's faithfulness, and they're prospering. It's a whole psalm about this in Psalm 73 when we get there. I assume we'll probably look at that one. But I tell you what, I wanted to, um, I, what I got like, oh, I'm out of time, but uh, bottom line is, um, let me skip forward to just a couple of quick verses that point out to your attention. Uh, verse, by the way, verses 10 and 11 really kind of focus on the fact that we are to be eternally minded, not earthly minded, uh, think eternally. Verses 12 through 15 they, uh, they really explain the hatred this world has for those that are in Christ. It, it really helps explain why North Korea and China's dictators hate peaceful Christians. It makes no sense. I mean, they're, they're the least threat to anything. They're not the ones trying to control anything like that, but you know, these things uh, help us understand. Verse 15 is a, um, uh, verse 16 is a great, great nugget of truth and perspective. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. A great nugget of truth. A little bit of the righteous has, and you can see 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul said that. And as I was thinking about 
this verse 16 in 1 Timothy 6, 6, this came to my mind, I put it on the screen. Commitment is so much greater than attainment. Commi or contentment, sorry. Contentment is so much greater than attainment. Uh, the world wants you to attain. God wants you to be content. And when you are content, God may have you attain some things that you would like, but you aren't focused on them. He might just bestow them after all. Uh, he did this with Abraham. He did, he's done this with uh, a number of believers. Um, verse 17 is, uh, and it's just really going fast. I love verse 17, the last verse. But the Lord upholds the righteous. Upholds the righteous. And so we can kind of think about, that's an abbreviated view of Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. So this, what David says, the Lord upholds the righteous, just an abbreviated uh, of the, the kind of even more comprehensive wording that Isaiah has in Isaiah 41.10. Um, just bringing up verses 23 through 26. I don't have time to read them. Uh, but really it talks about the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in his way. Even if he falls, he won't be utterly cast down. The Lord upholds him. Uh, he's never seen the Lord... Uh, He's never seen the righteous forsaken. Uh, one of my favorite verses, kind of a good compliment to this, is, is uh, Psalm 92, 12. The righteous, and I've quoted it many times, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. What's really cool about what God does is even this verse, Psalm 92, 12, which kind of a parallel to it. Uh, those that have been saved by grace and have been given a new heart and a new nature, if we feed on his faithfulness, we will flourish. It's not a might you will flourish. You will bear much fruit. Jesus is going to say this in, in John 15. Palm trees do not decide to be beautiful. Palm trees don't say, I'm going to be beautiful. I'm going to be uh, flourishing. Cedars do not decide to be strong. It's bestowed upon God that by them to be strong and to flourish and to be beautiful. You don't have to decide to be strong and flourishing you have to decide to feed on the faithfulness of God. Then he bestows what he does to palm trees and cedar trees. He'll make you flourish. He'll make you strong. You don't decide to be flourishing strong. You decide to feed on his faithfulness, and God will do the rest. And I just put up, hey, you, some of you like to take pictures. This is a whole, that's the verses 1 through 7, what not to do, what to do, and what God says you can expect. Everything in the white on the bottom there is I itemized. I didn't even have a chance to go through all of it, but that's what you can expect God to do. Uh, if you're interested, I can post this one on Calvary Tales, our internal um, uh, Facebook page. But aren't you glad we can trust God and feed on his faithfulness and dwell in his faithfulness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness. We thank you for the gift of truth. I thank you for using David in a preacher mode to remind us what not to do and to remind us what to do. And Lord, you'll be faithful to bring it to pass as we dwell and feed on your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the evening.